There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. You're riding on a jet airliner en route from London to New York. You're at 35,000 feet atop an overcast and roughly 55 minutes from Idlewild Airport. But what you've seen occur inside the cockpit of this plane is no reflection on the aircraft or the crew. It's a safe, well-engineered, perfectly designed machine. And the men you've just met are a trained, cool, highly efficient team. The problem is simply that the plane is going too fast. And there is nothing within the realm of knowledge or at least logic to explain it. Unbeknownst to passenger and crew, this aeroplane is heading into an uncharted region, well off the beaten track of commercial travelers. It's moving into the twilight zone. What you're about to see we call the Odyssey of Flight 33. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo, and joined once again by... 80Z here on this side of the... The universe, if you will, the fifth dimension side of the northern side. Hey, just just for just for kicks, uh, let's just say one day that um, something like Ready Player One does happen, and we can actually put on virtual headsets and we can host a Tragedy of Cinema live event on virtual reality. How cool would that be? Wow, you're several years into the future there. Uh, I'm just how I'm much? Just, how much is a VR setup like that? How, how much does that cost? Actually? Well, like a VR set right now is running between five to eight hundred dollars, from what I've seen. But as far as actually oh, really? getting into like your own little space, I'm not sure. That's something we'll check on. That'd be fun, though. I know Eric will show off yeah. that money for a VR set, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Eight hundred bucks, no problem. Right. So here we go. We're. Uh, Starting this episode, which is a uh, season two episode number eighteen, uh, we're probably closing maybe the halfway point, maybe a little past the halfway point for season two. Uh, this is the Odyssey of Flight Thirty Three, and let me tell you, they could have just took off the issy on that part because this is an odd episode. Yeah, yeah, it is. I thought maybe you would want to talk about the Odyssey of uh, I-65, which you had on Sunday man, afternoon. Was that you want to share a little bit with, about yeah, that story? Yeah, man. I was I was coming home. We got off work a little early. And, you know, I'm like, man, I'm going to get home early. The Super Bowl is coming on. Excited. Then about 50 miles away, dead stop on the intersection. I mean, dead stop. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm, man. I'm, I'm texting Eric. I said, Eric, can you see what's going on? And He's like, yeah, let me look. I said, I've been sitting here for like 45 minutes already. And then he sends me this tweet back. It says, yeah, dude, you're going to be sitting there a lot longer because, as I said, it ain't going to open up for another two hours. So, dude, I sat there for three and a half hours at a standstill on I-65 North. And I guess there was a major accident. You know, the Lifeline helicopter and all that came in. So hope everybody's okay with that accident. But I was not having a good time. But luckily, 
I had used yeah. the bathroom before I got on the interstate not too long ago, so I was good at that department, <laughs> and I had a bottled water, so we were good either way. <laughs> yeah. Man, I can't imagine. I'd be pulling my hair out three and a half hours. I I was feeling for you on Sunday. Have but, you ever uh, been, st- have no you ever time been travel, stuck in? No time travel in that. Uh, have you ever been stuck in traffic for that long? Uh, yeah, on uh, yeah trips. Like if I've gone on vacation somewhere, we've uh, there's been several times. I don't know about three and a half hours that long, but, but maybe an hour and a half to two hours. My brother-in-law probably, has a probably in Atlanta a proclivity. Yeah, he's a proclivity to. Well, he'll take alternate routes, and then we'll you know end up back on the interstate after we've gone like a thirty. 30 minute detour and out of the way right back into the traffic yeah that's, that's kind of how it happens so. yeah don't you hate that when you try to be smart and go around traffic and then you end up in behind the car that you were ahead of before you went on the detour. yeah it's that's one of the more frustrating things uh for sure but i'm glad to see that uh you made it home and you were safe and sound after the odyssey of i-65 so with that transition, let's move into the Odyssey of Flight 33 here on the Twilight Zone Season 2, Episode Number 18. And this episode was directed by Justice Addis. Uh, I think he was a last-minute replacement. We may have some trivia on that, I don't know, uh, later in the episode. It, this episode was written by Rod Serling. And the original air date for this particular episode was on February the 24th, 1961, which brings us to our famous little segment we like to call On This Day in History. On this day in film and TV history. Actually, I don't have any TV history for February 24th, but in film, 1955, we're going to talk about the 12th Golden Globes. On the Waterfront, Marlon Brando and Judy Garland, respectively, for the movie A Star is Born, they both win Golden Globes for Best Actor and Best Actress for those two films, respectively. Then if we skip ahead uh, about 50 years, or a little less than 50 years, at the 55th British Academy Film Awards, or BAFTAs, we have an award for The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, to be more specific, and it won Best Film, uh, and Peter Jackson won Best Director for that film. So there you go. There's a little bit of uh, insight and snippets on this day in history, February 24th. And again, I apologize, I don't have anything that I could find as far as it related to television. So just all films uh, for this uh, particular day. So back to the episode here of the uh, Twilight Zone. Our total production costs for this particular episode it came in again pretty modestly at $45,536.94. And when we adjust that for inflation to today's dollars, in 2023 we have $455,628.31, which gives us about a 906% increase. And uh, let me give you some dates, some important dates. So dates of rehearsal for this episode, October 18th and 19th of 1960. Hey, that's my birthday. And the dates of filming. Yeah. So you weren't born yet, though. No. You're about uh, (laughs) 30 some odd years later, you would uh, roll around. Um, You would roll in. And so the date of filming 
was October 20, 20th, 21st, and 24th of 1960. And I have a couple extra fees uh, added to uh, the actors for this particular episode. Uh, I can throw those in later, though, Jimbo, after you, uh, once you roll us that cast. Absolutely. Um, we have a, a fairly, I wouldn't say big cast. I mean, it's bigger than some of the ones that we've covered recently. Um, basically, it's the, the people on the plane as far as the cockpit are the major uh, actors in this movie as well as some of the stewardesses. So here we go. Uh, probably the main uh, pilot, uh, Captain Skipper Farver, was played by John Anderson. A little interesting fact about John Anderson is he was in three other Twilight Zones bef- besides this one. Uh, some that we haven't covered and one that we have so far. Uh, one of them is The Old Man in the Cave. Uh, another one is Of Late, I think, of Cliffordsville. And yes, he was in A Passage for Trumpet, which we covered in Season 1. Uh, but he yep. uh, was also in the movie Psycho in 1960. And some of you may remember him as MacGyver's grandfather on the TV show MacGyver. Uh, then we had Paul Kami. Uh, he was the first officer, John Craig. He was in Howard the Duck in 1986, where he played Dr. Chapin. And he was also in Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, where he played the second prisoner, which we will be covering uh, here in a few months with uh, Evil Never Dies podcast again, with our collaboration on the Planet of the Apes episodes. Uh, we also have Sandy Kenyon uh, playing Navigator Hatch. Uh, he was in on Down, Down on Us in 1984. You had Wayne Hefley. He was the second officer, Wyatt. He was in Orca in 1977. You had Hart McGuire. He was flight engineer Purcell. He was on On the Beach in 1959. You had Betty Gard. She was one of the passengers where she was in the movie Caged in 1950, which I watched a trailer of that, and it looks pretty crazy and intense, so I might have to check that out. Uh, You had Beverly Brown. Uh, She was Janie. She was in Cool Runnings in 1993. You had Nancy Rennick. She was Paula. She was in Rescue 8 in 1958. You had Jay Overholtz, who was a passenger. He was also in the Twilight Zone. I didn't see what other one he was in. I had Robert McCord, who was an uncredited passenger, and he was uh, also in some other Twilight Zones. And then, of course, you had the late, great Rod Serling as himself, as the narrator and the host of the Twilight Zone. So, Eric, that is your cast of this episode, The Flight of Odyssey 33. All right. Thank you very much, Jimbo. Let me go ahead and throw those talent fees in here. Um, I don't know if these were just extra fees on top of salaries. I didn't really do too much investigating on that, but let me give you some. So Paul Comey uh, received $600 for his role as First Officer Craig. Harp McGuire received $500 for his uh, role as Flight Engineer Parcel. John Anderson received $800 for his role as Captain Farber. Wayne Hefley received $500 for his role as second officer Wyatt. Beverly Brown received $350 for her role as stewardess Jane. Sandy Kenyon received $600 for his role as navigator Hatch. And uh, that comes from the Martin Grahams Jr. uh, book entitled Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. So I'm assuming those are just extra talent fees that were added onto their salaries. But the the big winner on all this uh, episode, as far as money wise goes, goes to the Brontosaurus. <laughs> he got he got the most money. Yes, he did. Dedicated to his part, and we'll we'll get to that um, shortly. So uh, let me give you a, a brief plot or synopsis here. Um, actually, let me back up a little bit. Let's talk about John Anderson because I did write just a mini bio, and I just have a few 
trivia facts about him, our, our main character, the Captain Farver here. He was born on October 20th, 1922. How about that, Jimbo? Okay. In Clayton Hills, Illinois. And uh, he died on August 7th, uh, 1992 in Sherman Oaks, California. He actually had a high opinion of Rod Serling and was proud to be featured in four episodes of The Twilight Zone, uh, four mentioned by Jimbo, uh, in 1959. And uh, he was in four episodes, uh, probably most memorably known as the tuxedo-cladded Gabriel. He was an angel in the Passage for Trumpet, which we've already covered. He was... Um, doing for Jack Klugman it says here he was doing for Jack Klugman what Henry Travers did for James Stewart in a one it's a wonderful life mm-hmm. uh, his, his first appearances on television was on Gunsmoke in 1955 he more specifically he played in an episode called Buffalo Man uh, which climaxed with a brutal fist fight between his character character Ben Sipple and James Arness who played Marshal Matt Dillon um, this is the sequence also featured Jack Klugman, who would later co-star with him in the Passage for Trumpet uh, in the Twilight Zone a few years later. Uh, he bore a strong resemblance to President Abraham Lincoln and portrayed him three times. He also played Presidents Andrew Jackson twice and Franklin Roosevelt once. Um, Anderson had lost his own wife shortly before appearing in Star Trek The Next Generation in an episode called The Survivors, which I think I've seen almost all of The Next Generation. I have to go back and uh, watch that episode. But he struggled with that episode, Survivors, and said that the subject matter uh, made the role of Kevin Uxbridge uh, one of the most difficult of his career. So um, apparently that uh, that episode must have hit very close to home uh, for whatever reason. Um, after his death in 1992, he was cremated and his ashes were taken out to sea as part of his membership with the Neptune Society. Hmm. So I did a little digging on what the Neptune Society is, and apparently they specialize uh, in cremation and subsequent burials at sea. So that's kind of what they do. Um, um, so he was cremated and, and his ashes were spread uh, out to sea. So he served in the United States Coast Guard in World War II. He spent a year at the Cleveland Playhouse before going to New York and Broadway early in his career. He started his acting career on the Mississippi River showboat called Goldenrod. So that's kind of interesting that he got uh, some of his early start uh, on a riverboat. Uh, He received a master's degree in drama from the University of Iowa. And this one ought to be interesting for Jimbo and I. He twice played Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the commissioner of baseball, from 1920 to 1944. Uh, uh, Landis was brought in by the team owners to restore public confidence after the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Mm. And he played in a movie called uh, Babe Ruth, a television uh, made-for-television movie called Babe Ruth in 1991, where he played the commissioner, and then also the famous movie Eight Men Out in 1988. He played uh, Commissioner Landis in both of those movies. Uh, he shares the last name with Richard Dean Anderson and played the grandfather, as Jimbo said, of MacGyver in 1985, despite being there, there was no relation there. And more specifically about this episode, and this will wrap up the trivia about uh, John Anderson. He says about this episode, We looked darn serious uh, doing that show, laughed Anderson, but we had a blast filming it. Uh, The guys playing my co-pilots were great. The director had trouble getting us settled 
because we were having so much fun. When you see me looking out at the dinosaur, I'm really looking at the poor director. As soon as he would yell <laughs> cut, we were cracking we were cracking jokes again. We were confined to this little cockpit, and whenever the director said, there's a dinosaur, we had to pretend that it was out there. I saw this episode recently, and I was amazed that I was able to spew out the technical gobbledygook. So there's uh, John Anderson, a little snippet uh, bio of him. So, moving along, let's uh, talk about the plot of this episode. So, Global Flight 33 is in route from London to New York in what appears to be a routine flight in a modern jetliner. Suddenly, however, the jet speed increases to an incredible 3,000 knots, and they arrive in New York rather quickly. Neither the captain or his well-trained crew can explain what happened. A strange tailwind, perhaps, but they are certainly not prepared for what they find as they survey the land below them. So there you go. A little plot line. In the opening scenes, anything that sticks out? I know Jimbo got a few extra books. Uh, well, he added to his collection a little bit. I don't know if there's anything off the top that that uh, that you want to share with us? Well, Eric, I just opened those books today, so obviously they weren't... Oh, okay. I didn't have time to incorporate those into this episode, but starting next week we will have some more information. I'm pretty excited about them. Um, but I'll go ahead and, and I'll do a little bit of how this whole scenario came to be. So, in my okay. trusty my trusty sidekick book, The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Scott Zickry, which is one of my favorites. As a matter of fact, I just got the updated, expanded, and revised third edition. It's got a lot more information. Nice. In, but I, um, I was reading through some of this paragraphs, and I was like, man, okay, that's good. Uh, okay, that's good, too. So, I figured I'm just going to read this whole little section uh, until the, the where I feel it <laughs> needs to be cut off. Because it's so good, and it opens up your eyes to several different things behind the scenes and, and how the story came up and, and the, the cockpit dialogue and all that. So, here we go. Hmm. On the day that Serling first conceived of the episode, one of the series' most effective and authentic, his brother, then an aviation writer for United Press International, was visiting back, uh, from back east. Rod had taken him to MGM. Robert J. Serling recalls, There was some mail on his desk at Cayuga Productions, and on the top was an envelope from American Airlines, and he opened that just about first. It was a brochure offering a mock-up of a 707 passenger cabin to any studio that was going to film a scene. It was something they used in stewardess training, and they decided to build another one. They had this one on the West Coast, and they were going to rent it out or sell it. Uh, we go back out on the studio, and he hasn't opened one uh, blankety-blank piece of mail except this. Uh, we get to the car, and he says, you drive? And I thought, oh, God, something's wrong, because he never let me touch one of his cars. He wouldn't even let me put my finger on it, let alone drive it. So we're driving, and he looks at this brochure, and all of a sudden, he closes and says, Bob? Suppose you had a jet over the Atlantic and it picked up a freak tailwind of such velocity that its ground speed was something like 8,000 miles an hour and it was so fast that it went through a time barrier and when it came in over uh, Idlewood Airport, there wasn't any more airport and they were back in prehistoric times. This was the flight uh, or the Odyssey of Flight 33. Bob Serling's involvement with the episode didn't end there. He calls me up about two weeks later. I was back in Washington and he says, hey, I need cockpit dialogue for that jet that goes back in time i said you need what cockpit dialogue what happened in the cockpit when they pick up the tailwind i said rod you've got an impossible implausible situation to begin with so how in the blank can i give you the cockpit dialogue 
He said, well, give me something about the radio checkpoints to try to reach something about what would happen in the airplane, the ground speed versus the true airspeed, and all that stuff. I said, okay, I'll try. There was a TWA international captain living in Washington. He commuted up to New York to take his flights out. I called him. He came over to the house one night, and I guess we killed a bottle of bourbon between us and came up with the dialogue in the <laughs> cockpit. I kept telling him the story, and we'd act out the roles. Then I called Rod back. I never could write to him. I always had to call him. He always was in a hurry and gave him the dialogue over the phone. Somewhere, he's got letters from some pilots who said it was the most technical, accurate piece that anybody has ever done on an airplane flight. It was. The checkpoints mm. were perfect. The dialogue was just what a crew would say. So under Justice Addis' direction, John Anderson, Paul Comey, Hart McGuire, Wayne Hefley, and Sandy Kenyon as captain and flight crew give performances that are cool, understated, and credible. Aerial stock footage of the 1939 New York World's Fair is well integrated into the episode. Of course, the real shocker of the show is contained in two brief but very convincing shots, bird's eyes views of a brontosaurus. These wonderful shots were accomplished using a tabletop landscape and a miniature jointed model of a brontosaurus moved frame by frame in the classic technique known as stop motion animation. The dinosaur was one of the puppets used in Jack Harris' picture, Dinosaurs, from which Projects Unlimited did the special effects, explained special effects wizard Wa Chang. The partners in Project were Gene Warren, Tim Barr, and myself. We also did the effects uh, for the Time Machine, Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, Wonderful World of Brothers Graham, and as well as TV series Outer Limits and some of the effects of Star Trek and many, many more. So there's just a little uh, backstory that actually Rod Serling's brother actually helped come up with some of the dialogue and what would happen to the flight if it did happen. So there you go. Right. Yeah, um, I think Rod's brother helped him on maybe at least one or two more episodes later. I believe it might be in season five. So, yeah, uh, kudos to him for... Uh, helping him with the technical jargon and all the things that would make it more credible episode. And just how funny is it that they downed a whole thing of bourbon, a bottle of bourbon, and then they came up with the most accurate cockpit <laughs> dialogue. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we'll, we'll get to, there's one little goof that, well, I'll get to in a minute that, that, that they, one thing they kind of missed, but, uh, by way of just an outline here for this episode, um, we basically got three main movements. Uh, we got 1961 or current time, and then uh, Jurassic period or prehistoric period, and then the third uh, movement is back uh, to 1939. So they didn't quite make it all the way back, and uh, so we start out 1961, and we everything's going fine. We we come in a lot of the the dialogue and a lot of the cinematography is in the cockpit of that mock-up 707. And so um, we discover that there's a sensation of speed and the accelerating ground speed reaches 3,000 knots. And all of a sudden, the uh, the flight and the flight crew, they, they're unable to make contact with any control towers. And then uh, Rod's narration comes in. What do you think about his narration there on the on the deck of the 707 did you think that was pretty cool or did, yeah yeah it was all right really yeah. matter to you yeah just... so uh, one of the things that i noticed in his monologue was that he used the the line a safe well-engineered machine 
It's interesting that he was very careful with his language in the narration not to scare people away from air travel. You know, after right, right. watching this episode, a person might be like a little bit apprehensive about like, oh, man, what if that would, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting that he was very careful with his language. Um, so the scene kind of changes from the cockpit and then we go into the cabin and then there's some interaction amongst passengers. That lady says, oh, my my uh whoever my relatives liver and she's telling the story to this guy you know yeah. kind of that's kind of that was kind of funny too like if yeah, i haven't traveled very much on air travel but like i always hear stories about people who travel a lot and they get stuck beside somebody who wants to talk the whole time or whatever i thought that was kind of funny how they incorporated that a uh, little bit into the episode so um as we change into the cabin, the flight attendants, they discuss this fearful situation that nobody in the cockpit seems to understand. Um, but the flight attendants are determined to stay calm and serve their passengers. Um, and then we have the shaking, the light, the sound, the shock waves and the possible turbulence. Uh, and then, um, it's decided in the cockpit that they're going to descend because they have no frame of reference, like none of their instruments are working. So they're going to descend and try to figure out visually uh, and try to establish some kind of visual contact. And then that's when we transition from 1961. They realize that they're in the Jurassic uh, period. And uh, the Manhattan Island has no no skyline because all of the buildings are gone. They instantly realize that there's something wrong. Um no buildings, no people. Basically, New York has disappeared. Um, and I thought, here's a question that I had. Would the landscape even be recognizable? I, I thought about that. You know, if you went back, mil let's say, quote-unquote, millions of years, I mean, would it even be recognizable? Or would the Earth's, you know, I don't know. That's a question, a science question, I guess. Would, you know, the topographical or whatever, would the mountains all be in the same I guess that's a discussion for another day, but that was one question that was raised in my mind. Like, would you even be able to tell, would the river still be in the same place? Would a lot of the topographical stuff still be in the same place? You, you know, without, without pollution and erosion and all that stuff. Yeah. It's hard to say. Yeah. Like all of that. Yeah, exactly. Like all of that stuff takes place over thousands or millions of years or whatever you uh, think. Like, I don't know that that's something to, that just came to my mind. So New York has disappeared, you know, they descend and then we get this famous shot of the dinosaur and, you know, he's the brontosaurus and he's eating and there's uh, two stop motion, kind of, kind of a far away shot and then a closer shot and the brontosaurus is kind of looking over his shoulder. He turns and looks up. flies by that. But yeah, but just a little trivia about that. Um, I think Jimbo, you mentioned this earlier, but the Brontosaurus model and miniature jungle set is from a 1960 film called Dinosaurus, uh, which used stop motion animation. The expense of the two brief shots ran $2,500, making it the most expensive footage in the original Twilight Zone. So then I have another figure out of one of the books that we use. And it says the cost of the special effects was a bit pricey at thirty nine forty, almost five times more than the highest paid actor in this episode. Mm. So that was a really expensive piece of film that they uh, incorporated into this particular episode. So 
we realize that the flight has gone back into time. The, you know, somehow, some way, Captain Farber says we've we've gone back in time some kind of way. So he decides, along with his other crew members, the decision is made to crank up the speed again of the, the airplane to go back up and try to get into this jet stream and to go back to where they came from, in essence. So then we get some more shaking and light and sound and shock waves and all the turbulence again. <laughs> And they think that they've made it back. But in reality, we've come to the third movement now. We're in 1939. They've come up short a few years, which poses a few problems. One being that there is no radar. Um, the, they do get in touch with the ground crew, right? But the ground crew, they're asking them, what kind of equipment are you on? We don't know what, a, we don't know what radar is. We don't know what jet jet airplanes are. Mm-hmm. Um and Jimbo, did you have something? No, I was just saying. I was just agreeing. Oh, I was just. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I thought you had something to insert there, but they realize as they're uh, coming over the New York skyline again, it looks very different. And there's a realization that they're in 1939 because they see the New York's World's Fair, and they can't. They've come back, but they haven't come back far enough. And so the captain tells the passengers. That he has to, he's got to tell them something very difficult and something that he can't explain. So he kind of gets on the horn and he tells them to remain calm and uh, basically to pray. Let me give you a, a little trivia about the airports that are mentioned uh, in this episode. So the captain mentions Idlewild as their destination, and the plane is de- uh, destined for New York, according to the narrator. Idlewild was renamed JFK after the president was assassinated in 1963. Mm. LaGuardia Airport, however, although it had opened in October of 1939 and thus was opened during the second half of the 1939-1940 World's Fair in New York, was not officially named after Mayor Firello H. LaGuardia until 1947. So, that's a, a point of contention there. The, it wasn't actually named LaGuardia. They named it uh, LaGuardia in 1939 or whatever, but it actually wasn't named LaGuardia until 1947. Up until that point, its official name was the New York Municipal Airport. However, the nickname LaGuardia Field was a common use um, two weeks after the airport uh, actually opened. So... Um, those are just uh, two little snippets there as it relates to the airports. Um, uh, the exterior shots of the aircraft, uh, the name of the airline is not apparent, although it is described as global flight. On close examination, one can observe that the aircraft is faintly labeled Boeing 707, and it's really difficult that uh, when they have those exterior kind of stock shots of the airplane during the episode, mm-hmm. you can barely... I had to go back and really zoom in and you can kind of see Boeing 707 um let's talk about Captain Farber here he uh during the episode he asks Wyatt to contact weather ship Charlie for a radar fix and a ground speed check there really was a ship by the name in the North Atlantic and it was located at 52 degrees 44 minutes north 35 degrees 30 minutes west uh, this was close to the position in the episode that Wyatt radios to Gander. 
this this actual ship was part of a network of weather ships established by the International Civil Aviation Organization in 1948. They were provided by the United States, Canada, and some European countries. Charlie was discontinued in 1973. So that's interesting. That again, that kind of goes back to what you were talking about. How you know authentic all of the dialogue was, and that they were they took a lot of painstaking efforts. So there actually was a weather ship in the northern Atlantic that you know planes would contact to get their ground speed and all that stuff, and it was. It, continued on until it was decommissioned in 1973. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, the aerial view of the 1939 World's Fair is an actual stock footage shot from an airplane circling above the fair. It was specifically from the Trilon and the Parisphere. So those were the two uh, you know, airplanes that shot the stock footage of the World's Fair. And not a Chinese weather balloon. <laughs> Those were actual. Uh, like Eric, uh, uh, that's alleged, yeah. alleged balloons. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I talked about that already. That the episode takes place in 1961, millions of years in the past, in 1939. Um, the earliest draft of the script labeled it as a trans-ocean jetliner. Trans Ocean 33, but when Serling learned from his brother that there was an actually an airline called Trans Ocean, he changed the name to Trans Globe, which making the correction in the script was not a problem. Serling had already jumped the gun and submitted a short story adaptation of the same name and quickly contacted Richard E. Roberts, the managing editor of Bantam Books. So apparently he wrote a short story about this uh, episode as well. So and then he had to contact them and change the name. Uh, to Drans Globe. Uh, here's the two goofs that I talked about before, and this is a pretty big one. Uh, one mistake that they kind of made: an airline pilot experiencing extra velocity on a westbound trip from London to New York would not attribute this to a strong jet stream, as he would know that the jet stream flows from west to east. Mm -hmm. So, if they're traveling from east to west, obviously the jet stream wouldn't affect them. Uh, because it flows uh, west to east. Um, and here's the second one. Near the end, the pilot announces to the passengers that the buildings below them are, uh, those are the 1939's World's Fair around Lake Success. But the 1939 World's Fair was built uh, north of Meadow Lake in Flushing Meadows, Corona Park in Queensboro, nearly nine miles west of Lake Success. So there's a little bit of an accuracy discrepancy there uh, as far as where it was actually located. But that kind of concludes what I have well, as far as trivia well, uh, and, for the episode. And, well, and, and, and coming to the end of the closing, the, the, the pilot asked, uh, well, we can't land here, basically, so we're just going to have to try to go back up and hit the jet stream again. So you don't know if they're yeah. in this continuous cycle, if they made it back home. It's just an open-ended yeah. uh, closing. Uh, which is a very interesting thing about because he's asking like how much fuel do we have you know what I mean so um, you've always heard of uh, well we'll go back to the uh, episode in season one I can't remember the name of it where the World War II fighter goes up in the fog and comes down and he's in like present <laughs> times remember yeah. I know you like that one I did yeah and then he ends up he ends up taking off again and then basically he's just a, a, a ghost basically wandering around the airlines 
or the, the, the skies forever trying to get back home. Do you think that this mm-hmm. crew is experiencing the same type of phenomenon where they'll never get back home and they are just trapped in this purgatory of trying to land the plane that they basically died? Um, yeah, I kind of consider that, I, I guess maybe let me, that was part of my questions and observations. Um, I think the flight crew know that they're not going to make it back to 1961, but that they're going to try anyway, even though they know that they're going to die, basically. And Mm -hmm. here's why I think that, because there's a piece of trivia that tells me why Captain Farber says in the episode, theirs is not to reason why in the Valley of Public Relations. And then he picks up the phone and he tells all of the passengers, hey, this is what's about to go down, like, uh, you know, and he gives his little spiel over the intercom. Theirs is not to reason why is a line from Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, followed by the ominous line, theirs, theirs but to die, or excuse me, theirs but to do and die. The poem itself is about soldiers charging into battle knowing that they're going to die. Into the Valley of the Public Relations is a reference to a biblical valley of the shadow of death, and is also a play on the line of Tennyson's poem, Into the Valley of of death road the 600 so i thought that was kind of interesting piece of trivia that i pulled out uh i can't remember what where i pulled it out of i i I had to i had to memorize that uh that poem back in grade school yeah i think it's like half a league half a league half a league onward all in the valley of death road the Mm -hmm. 600 do you remember that Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah i remember it i remember it vaguely you you memorized it much better than i did but yeah to answer your question and that's a long way to answer your question, but I think that they are aware of their fate, but they're going to try anyway. And they're sort of lost. Like you explained, you're lost in this cycle of, you know, phenomenon that they're not going to be able to get back. All right. Let me ask you another question. Then if you had to choose between landing in the prehistoric times or landing in 1939, which one would you have chose? Which one do you think would have been harder? Which one do you think would have been harder to adapt to? (laughs) Oh, uh, well, because if you land, if you land sure. in if you land in thirty nine, you could potentially uh, meet yourself. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, it dep- depends on how old I was in nineteen thirty nine when I make it back. I'm just using myself as an example. Yeah, would I live to be another twenty six years? I might die before I reach. You know. Right. I don't know. That's and if you and if you die in your old body, do you die in your younger body? Because you, you know what I mean, or is it just a parallel universe? <laughs> you can go down a whole cut of several rabbit holes with this episode. The flight of Odyssey thirty four, thirty five, and thirty six. We're gonna write <laughs> <laughs> alternate endings to this. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, just one other observation I'll throw in here quickly. Three of the five cockpit crew members have airline seats. Three out of the five they have. Uh, this kind of bugged me. They have regular airline seats with seat belts. The other two only have wooden desk chairs. I don't believe that that was standard equipment on a four-engine jet. Even in 1960, they're sitting in wooden chairs. Like, if you notice in the cockpit, that's kinda, <laughs> that kind of bugs me a little bit. Like, they couldn't spend the extra little bit of extra money to actually actually put the correct you know chairs in there but anyway. well hey one thing i didn't one thing i did notice is if you look at the cockpit and you look at the back wall it's just like pegboard <laughs> you know what i mean it's yeah, yeah. spray painted white or something i was like really <laughs> you know? yeah it's interesting that you bring that up i think i read somewhere that that actually was removable they they actually removed that wall so that they could get 
camera shots. Oh, okay. And yeah, it looks pretty flimsy. So yeah, it does. That kind of explains. Yeah. Uh, thoughts, questions, observations, anything, or just your overall feelings? You well, go ahead and launch. I'm ready. Um, to me, this is just a middle of the pack episode. It's not very good. Uh, the saving grace is the brontosaurus. Um, because <laughs> other than that, it's forgettable. Um, so just for the brontosaurus, I'll probably give it a six, six and a half out of ten. Um, it's not going to win any major awards. Um, it's just, it's another time traveling stipulation that just doesn't work for me. I know you like time travel and all that, uh, more than I do. Um, and again, uh, there's really not a twilight zone twist at the end. Usually they have something twist, you know, at the end. So if you would have said, if they would have said, okay, well, we're, we're coming in for a landing and they land and then they step out of the plane and they are in prehistoric times and it ends, that might have been a better ending for me because that's like the twist. Hey, we're coming mm-hmm. in, we're landing, and boom, we're done. You know what I mean? Uh, da, da, mm-hmm. da. Now you've, you've – not only that, you drop down, you've seen the prehistoric time. Now you want to go back up in the air and now you want to say, oh, we're in 1939. It just didn't work for me. So that's my thoughts on it. Uh, Eric, what about you? You know what? I, I liked uh, I liked it better than you did, of course. I think it was ranked around a seven and a half. I would probably rank it around a seven. Uh, when you line it up with next week's episode, <laughs> it, uh, it's uh, far superior in my mind. I don't think so. And You're just for the just head. just, oh just for goodness. the fact that it has Burgess Meredith in it next week is way. It's already an eight out of ten right there. Oh my goodness, we're really going to disagree then. <laughs> I, I, yeah, you didn't like a penny for your thoughts because the Twilight Zone doesn't do comedy well, but but you'll like Mr. Dingle. Yeah, I don't know. So we'll have to we'll have to get into that and unpack it next week. But um, yeah, I think it was. There, I don't really have a whole lot of uh, commentary or things that I wrote down other than my observations. I thought it was pretty well done. Um, there's a, I think it's in season three. There's like the, the, I can't remember the title of the episode, but it's uh, about a missing flight, a, a flight that goes missing for like, you know, 20 years or something, and then it lands 20 years later. That's a pretty interesting episode, but I don't want to jump ahead. But yeah, I thought it was pretty well done. I liked it. Um, the cockpit was a little bit crowded. I don't know. I, they probably had a lot more um, co-pilots and such back in, or, you know, earlier jets. It, it seemed cramped and crowded, like... Uh, Anderson said uh, about it, but yeah, I thought it was fine. I thought it was the middle of the road. It, it wasn't terrible. Uh, you know, it's not the worst one we've seen, but it's not the best one. So I don't have a whole lot of commentary as far as that goes. But uh, let me give you a little bit of preview of next week's episode, and um, maybe we can uh, wrap this up. So the trailer for next week's episode called Mr. Dingle the Strong goes like this. I've only got and this is Rod speaking. He says, I've only got eight, about 18 seconds to tell you uh, that next week, Mr. Burgess Meredith returns to the Twilight Zone as Mr. Dingle the Strong. He plays the role of an incredible little man who's given the strength of about 500 men and comes <laughs> out of it as a kind of 20th century Hercules and Samson all rolled into one. It's designed to send you right from your set into a fast bowl of spinach. And then... Uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. Sterling crushes a telephone that rings on the table. Yep. He says it's catching. So that was kind of a cool little snippet. Uh, so a trailer for next uh, week's episode called uh, Mr. Dingle the Strong. Jimbo, you want to wrap this bad boy up? 
Sure. If you'd like to follow us on the social medias, we are the Tragedy of Cinema podcast on Facebook. We're also on uh, TikTok now, which has somehow already gained over 300 followers out of nowhere. Um, but Eric, before we go, I have a joke for you. Are you ready? <laughs> let's hear it. Are you ready? Let's see. Let's see if Eric gives me the clap or the boo. Are you ready? Or the wah wah wah? Okay. Are you ready? Hold on. Let me let me let me cue, cue him up. up. Because here we go. Before before you tell me the joke. Okay. You ready? Eric, not everyone thought Cleopatra was cute. That's just how Julius Caesar. Uh, Hold on. There you go. There's your your punchline. I thought I'd add a little fun to the end of that episode. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, uh, so stay strong, uh, tuned for next week when we do Mr. Dingle the Strong. So with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close and that's a wrap. And cut. A global jet airliner en route from London to New York on an uneventful afternoon in the year 1961. But now reported overdue and missing and by now searched for on land, sea, and air by anguished human beings, fearful of what they'll find. But you and I know where she is. You and I know what's happened. So if some moment, any moment, you hear the sound of jet engines flying atop the overcast, engines that sound searching and lost, engines that sound desperate, shoot up a flare or do something, that would be Global 33 trying to get home from the Twilight Zone.